Hello! Welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios, here with Elizabeth Spires of Slate and the New York Times and places like that. Hello. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hi. The theme this week is We Are the 2%. We're going to talk about what's been happening with Delta and their frequent flyer miles. We're going to talk about Amazon and the lawsuit they are now embroiled in with the FTC, the antitrust suit. We are going to talk about LinkedIn and how it's so cool and I love it now. No, we're going to talk about LinkedIn and whether it's cool and um, why Emily Peck loves it so much. (laughs) We have a Slate Plus segment all about concrete bananas. Go ahead. You know you want to subscribe to Slate Plus just to learn what we have to say about concrete bananas. It's all coming up on Slate Money. Okay, so I wanted to talk this week about what I'm calling We Are The 2%, which is, and Emily's already shaking her head, which is the plight. Well, I am not the 2%. I just want that made clear. (laughs) Go ahead. And to be clear, I am not the 2% either. Um, But (laughs) there is this very interesting phenomenon that if you've been following sort of the the frequent traveler complaints over the past three or four years, or at least since like travel started picking up post-COVID, there has been a perennial list of whines and complaints, especially about airport lounges and how status on airlines ain't what it used to be. And the Delta CEO came out this week and said something very interesting, which is basically that since COVID, their their number of diamond status flyers, which is the top status you can have on Delta, doubled. And more generally, the number of people with access to lounges and people wanting upgrades and people wanting all of the little perks you can get with status on airlines has gone up dramatically. The whole point about airline status is that it's a positional good. It's about being, you know, one notch higher than everyone else. And when everyone has a positional good, it stops having any value. And this has definitely been seen in airline lounges, which are just really full. There are often like half hour lines to just even get into them. Uh, the experience has been degraded because they're so popular. And the whole point about like a VIP room is that they're meant to be empty or at least only, you know, they're they're meant to be comfortable and they're just not anymore. Um, And so the airlines are kind of struggling with this in a world where, and we should really like mention this up front, the value of an airline's mileage program and the value of its like credit card rewards ecosystem is in pretty much the case of every single major US airline greater than the value of the airline itself. Yeah, that was really surprising to me. Delta makes what $7 billion in revenue from its relationship with American Express That's and has a goal of $10 billion. And that's about what it makes from flying passengers. And of course, the margins on that $7 billion are like, massive they're like thousands of percent whereas the margins on flying passengers are super slim it's a much less stressful business <laughs> just sell miles right? to amex I mean, flying people is if you yeah. if you need if you need another few billion <laughs> right. dollars just sell another few billion miles to amex like how hard can that be 
It is amazing how airlines have discovered this way of creating and printing their own currency. But like, I think what we have done is we've found what happens in, you know, a lot of the world when you create and print a lot of your own currency is that currency gets devalued. And so why we're talking about this this week is because Delta announced some changes to the way it's um, diamond level works to the way it's exclusive membership perks work, I think about a week or two ago and made it harder to achieve status in its new system. And there was big pushback and blowback and people are very attached to their miles and their memberships and their diamond status. People freaked out. And so this week, the CEO came out and said, we, we went too far. So that's why we're talking about it this week. And and so yeah, and so this is where the this is where there's like we are the two percent come in is that the top you know one percent who spend gazillions of dollars flying business class all over the world you know they will have their diamond status and they will get their perks. Um, basically, the point of the changes was to thin the herd a bit and basically knock out a bunch of the second percent who had over the course of the past few years joined that crowd and made it too crowded. There's one thing that I didn't really understand about uh, Delta's explanation for why they did that. They said that the number of diamond holders went up during COVID. How, How do we think that happened? I mean, people weren't traveling as much. That's because they let people they let people roll over their status and their miles. So they just like sat and accumulated over the time period. So that's what, that's what happened there. It was their fault. They should have seen this coming. And then more generally, there has been, as we've covered many times on this show, a massive post pandemic spike in travel. And we have also seen something that is relatively new, which is a much, much greater willingness for individuals to shell out their own cash for international business class tickets it used to just be like if someone else is paying i'll fly business otherwise there's no way i'll pay that much money now if you go into a business class you know uh section of an airplane and you look at the people who actually paid for those tickets a lot of them have have spent their own money and so that that too you know one of the reasons why one of not not the top reason, but one of like in the back of their head, a lot of one of the reasons why people buy business class tickets is, you know, this will help get me status for all those times that I don't buy fly business class. You get and, upgrades. And so, you know, airlines do make a bunch of money that way from people buying business class tickets that they might not otherwise have bought were it not for all of these, you know, games people pe- play with miles and status. Yeah, I wondered about that. Now that people are just buying these seats flat out the airline doesn't need to to do anything special to get people in those seats anymore with upgrades and 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 these perks and things is that what you're saying well it still needs it, this is the thing and this is why the delta ceo came out and said they went too far is you still need the perks because absent the perks you know the business class seat is just like a comfier chair for a few hours and you're like okay that's fine but it's not really worth five thousand dollars so the idea is that for the $5,000, you don't just get a comfier chair for a few hours. You also get various little points of high-touch love where you get like free upgrades to comfort plus when you're flying domestic economy or you get free Wi-Fi on the plane or you get access to the lounge, which used to be something people valued and is now 
something where people are like, well, I have access to the lounge, but I'm not going to it because I get a much better experience just going to the standard airport restaurant. It's better food and no lines and, you know, no stress. And we've, we've talked about, uh, when we've talked about air travel before, I think it's come up that, you know, part of the strategy is you, you need to really differentiate between business class and economy. And you can do that by making economy seem shittier relative to business class. So if suddenly more people are in business class and the lounges seem comparatively not as, you know, big a perk, um, it, it sort of undermines your entire retail strategy for first class and business class. I want to just interject and and talk about the lounge because I didn't really understand until we decided to do this because I'm a plebe and I don't travel that much and it's always in the worst seats at the back of the plane where you're all crowded in and it's a nightmare. But these lounges are they seem amazing. You get free drinks and there's a, a free there's buffet of food. And like really nice seats. And and some you have access to the outdoors, which usually when you go in the airport, you don't see outside again for it feels like your whole life. But in these lounges, you can go outside, you got free food, you got free drinks. It does seem pretty amazing. So now I feel like I actually get it a little bit. You you've been reading the Delta press releases. Yeah, but you? like, isn't you that the idea? Been going into the lounges because the that's the idea. <laughs> that's that's the dream. And those of us who who are, you know, I remember going into lounges you know pre-covid and some of them came very close to that i remember that you know the virgin upper class lounge at heathrow was amazing and it was very big and very empty and they had menus and they'd come and take your order and you know it and great seats and they had you know you could play ping pong and all of this kind of stuff right and it was a fun luxurious experience and you didn't feel like you were stuck in an airport waiting for your plane to leave um but then I've also been in my share of lounges where you can't get a seat, where it's super crowded, where the buffet is all picked over, where, you know, like, and plus at some point, I don't know, like the idea of, ooh, free drinks stops being quite as attractive as it was <laughs> when you were like 23. Yeah, but even there's free like bottled water and juice. So are you officially the the 2% that we were talking about? Who's I'm not. Like, so, so I have, <laughs> I have never really embraced this whole mileage game um I, i've never had loyalty to any one airline i've never been one of those people who's like i could fly non-stop to where i'm going but i'm going to fly on this other airline instead and change in atlanta because that way i get to rack up my miles right which is again the whole point of these things is to get people loyal to a certain airline i just fly where i'm going or whatever seems like the you know the best flight for me in terms of timing and price and I have almost never received any perks because I don't have that kind of loyalty. But there are a lot of people who used to really value the perks who in recent years started complaining a lot about how those perks weren't worth anything anymore, but who now, when they're losing those perks, are kind of like, damn, that sucks. And it's just like, it's it's a bit of a like Yogi Berra thing. Right? Why, why are you going to complain about losing something that you were only complaining about how shit it was we should mention by the way that the the financial aspect of this which is important which is that the new delta scheme basically completely obliterated any way of getting miles that didn't involve spending cash it used to be that if you flew like two segments to go somewhere 
rather than flying nonstop, then that was two segments, according to your like segment tally. And then if you racked up enough segments, then um, you could get status. It used to be that literally it was miles. Like if you flew a longer trip, that was more miles than a shorter trip, and therefore you got more miles for that. Um, all, all of that has now gone away at Delta, and it's just a question of spend. It's like, how much money did you pay Delta for your plane ticket? And or how much money did you spend on your Delta branded American Express card? And, you know, add up that amount of actual cash outlay and that will determine what your status is. It seems like this is all just a part of like ongoing degradation of airline, of air travel in the United States. Like it's just over the years become a more terrible experience for most people, even in the back of the plane on coach. So why wouldn't like it become harder to get the exclusivity, you know? I think that's right. And I think that's what Elizabeth was talking about is that as the experience has degraded overall, the desire to get the perks and the lounge access and the upgrades has has increased in an attempt to sort of get back to the experience that we all knew and loved in the halcyon days of air travel, whenever that was, right? And it just doesn't, the numbers game doesn't work. There are too many people wanting that experience and not enough capacity of lounges i mean delta has been desperately trying to build out new lounges as fast as it can but like at some point they just can't keep up so they had just broadened the qualif the qualifying terms for inclusion in those clubs too widely and they had now they need to narrow it and and no one wants that obviously i i do think a lot of this is actually weirdly delta specific um, and specific to the Delta Amex relationship, there was this weird peculiar thing in the Delta Amex relationship where the Delta Amex, the Delta Platinum Amex card did not automatically give you access to the lounge. But the Amex Platinum card, the one that wasn't branded Delta, did give you automatic access to the Delta lounge. And so Amex was using that access as a way of selling its platinum card. And a whole bunch of people who, you know, just had the platinum card for whatever reasons were like, this is great. I get to go in the lounge whenever I want. And and Delta started cutting back on that a little bit. But, you know, it was clearly a large part of the problem. But as you say, the relationship with Amex is worth so much money to Delta, they can hardly tell, you know, the Amex Platinum cardholders to fuck off. Do you think this matters in any broad sense in any way? I I mean, I want to draw some like facile conclusion about how everyone can't be above average. And when everyone tries, it just kind of fails. But I don't know if that's like actually, that might be a bit of an overstretch. So you're, so you're saying we like, it's the case for elitism. <laughs> like not everyone can I'm just, have I'm it just all. Saying that, uh, like being a member of the elite is always a numbers game. You can only ever fit 1% of people into the top, top 1%. When you try and squeeze 2% of people into the top 1%, something breaks. Let's move on and talk about Lena Khan. Emily, it finally happened. Lena Khan's dream has come true. What was the dream and what did you do this week? The dream was um, reigning in Amazon's wild monopoly. And she wrote her, famously wrote um, a law review paper about this when she was in law school at Yale. And then this week, her dream came true when the FTC filed a lawsuit against Amazon for anti-competitive monopoly behavior. 
how much of this i mean this is a long suit and it's heavily redacted but the the gist of it is really clear yeah the gist is amazon's anti-competitive behavior uh raises prices for consumers and um, makes the market, the online superstore market less competitive. It has a monopoly um, online. There's like two separate monopolies. There's one for online superstores where Amazon represents like something like 75% of all the online superstore business in the United States. And then there's a monopoly on online marketplaces where people go to sell their stuff. So there's two separate monopolies going on, but they all interact together. And to me, a user of Amazon, I don't really make a distinction between either of those things. Um, and yeah, and the the complaint is very long. And there's all these intriguing bits that are redacted. There's something called Project Nessie, which I think is an algorithm. And I don't know much more about it because it's all redacted. Um, and some of the, the anti-competitive behaviors the FTC outlines are things like we sort of had n- known about. Um, but there's some like interesting stuff. Like if you want, if you're a seller and you want to sell your stuff on Amazon, Amazon essentially forces you to use its fulfillment services, which costs a lot of money. Because if you don't do that, you don't get counted as, as part of like a, pr- you're not a prime seller. And if you're not a prime seller, you might as well be dead on Amazon. Like no one's going to find your stuff. And even if they did find it, no one's going to want to order it. Um, So it's all linked together. And then what I thought was really interesting is like Lena Khan kind of became famous for her hipster antitrust for arguing that price isn't the only measure of um, is a company anti-competitive. So like in the 80s, um, the reasoning changed and basically the way (laughs) monopolies were judged was based on the price consumers paid. So if consumers were paying a really low price, you, your monopoly didn't, didn't matter under the law. And like Khan came out and said, there's other stakeholders and it's not just price that um, these lawsuits should be judged by these charges should be judged by. But if you read the FTC's complaint here with Amazon, they're arguing that because Amazon's anti-competitive behavior leads to higher prices for consumers, even though Amazon claims to be offering the lowest prices available, the way it gets to do that is by basically prohibiting sellers from offering lower prices anywhere else and hitting them with really high fees. So the quote unquote low prices are actually pretty high because of all the restrictions and and fees that Amazon is loading up into the site. So it's fake low prices essentially. And the FTC FTC is arguing if it stopped doing so, if Amazon stopped doing some of this stuff, then prices would actually come down which i do believe i think i think that what you would have like let's you know let our imaginations run wild here a little bit and ask ourselves like what is the remedy here and there was a few different possible remedies but in my mind i feel like a lot of them involve in one way or another removing amazon prime from amazon marketplace Um, or possibly like just abolishing Amazon Prime altogether. Because Amazon Prime is this thing that people pay a relatively low amount of money for convenience, and then once they have the convenience, they become price insensitive, and they'll pay the higher price because in a weird way, it's kind of been bundled into the cost of Prime. Um, If you got rid of Prime altogether um, and the shipping costs became more salient, then people could lower their prices and you could choose cheaper shipping and this kind of stuff. But it would definitely be 
a step backwards in terms of like ease and convenience. Yeah, but I don't think that's the only way. One suggestion in the complaint would be they suggest unbundling Prime. So, right, you're paying, I think it's over $100 now for Prime per year. And you don't just get the free shipping and the two-day delivery. You get Prime Video, Prime, you get music, you get all this other stuff. And and Amazon doesn't make it, doesn't really unbundle, but it could. And apparently it does. If you go deep enough, you can get some things unbundled. You, you can get just Prime Video if you want, um, for example. Um, but the FTC is like, if Amazon unbundled and you were just paying for the free shipping part, then other companies could actually compete with Amazon in that way, right? So so you wouldn't get rid of Prime necessarily, but you would sort of narrow its scope. There is a Walmart version of Prime. I can't remember what it's called. I think it's called like Walmart Plus or something like that. If there was a way that Amazon Marketplace sellers could sign up with Walmart Plus and Walmart Plus could fulfill orders from Amazon, then that would create competition on the free shipping front, right? And then like Amazon and Walmart would need to compete with each other to provide the cheapest and best experience for sellers. And if the prices for people um, ordering through Walmart Plus were lower than the prices for people ordering through Amazon Prime, even if they found the same object on the Amazon site, then that would drive prices down. Now, of course, Amazon will never voluntarily allow a Walmart Plus sticker to, you know, appear on its listings and say you get free shipping if you're Walmart Plus. But a court could definitely order that. Elizabeth, what's what's your what's your preferred remedy here? Or do you think that Amazon is great and nothing should be done? <laughs> I do not think that Amazon is great, but I think it's funny that the argument that uh, the FTC is making cuts against the way that I think most consumers think about Amazon. They think of it as the place where you can go to get cheap shit really easily. And maybe there are other companies that are maybe infringing on that territory very quickly, like Timu. Well, I think I think the I think the the insanely rapid rise of Timu and Shein and places like that is precisely because the prices are so much lower than Amazon. And you know, I I haven't felt that Amazon is cheap for a while. I felt that it's convenient and easy, but I, I haven't. I can't remember the last time I went onto Amazon and go, oh my God, that's such a great price. I think it's, it's I, a lot of the stuff that I order from Amazon is just obscure things that you can't just go to the store and get. Uh, so it's a convenience issue, but it's it's also, you know, particularly if you're looking for something that's very specialized, you, you get such a range of prices that it feels like you're getting the cheapest options sometimes, even if you're not. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the other thing they, they're very good at, right? Is that if you search for a thing they will then give you 35 different versions of the thing and you can pick the cheapest of the 35 options and think well therefore i'm getting a deal because it's the cheapest of 35 options but that doesn't really necessarily reflect how much it would cost if it's some obscure thing if you just went to you know back in the olden day whatever kind of shop you'd need to go to to get it get it might be cheaper still we don't know and and to to go to zoom in on that a little further, the search experience on Amazon has degraded to the point, and the FTC lays this all out. It used to be you would go on, search for pens or whatever, and you would get like organic search results. You know, you just get the best search results possible. But now, because Amazon's so increasingly reliant upon advertising, 
you get a lot of sponsored results um, and companies have to, sellers have to pay more money for, for advertising to even appear on your, on the first screen you get when you search for something. Cause you're not going to go deeper than that first screen anyways. And you don't know if you're getting the cheapest results on that first page. You're just getting what, what Amazon wants you to see. And that's what comes across from the whole complaint is like, Amazon has a market, but it is not a free market. It is a market meticulously controlled by this gigantic company um, where you are told you're getting the lowest price possible, but they're larding on fees. They're making these really restrictive requirements upon sellers and you're, and you're not getting the lowest price possible. You're getting the lowest price possible under all the rules and restrictions Amazon is layering on these sellers. As a media consumer, I feel it's just become harder and harder to distinguish what's an ad and what isn't. Um, you know, back in the day, it was always very obvious when you were leafing through a magazine, you know, what is the editorial and what is the Gucci ad, you know? Um, the internet, you know, has made those distinctions harder to notice, but like those of us who are relatively sophisticated media consumers are still pretty good at like, you know, realizing what's an ad on Instagram and what's a post from one of our friends, that kind of thing. Um, or even like on, when you Google something, the ads take up much more space, but they have a different background color and they're, they said that they're sponsored or promoted or something. And it, it's relatively obvious, which is which. On Amazon, it's completely impossible. On Amazon, there is like you need a level of media sophistication, which I have to admit I just don't have. And it might just be actually impossible to be able to really tell the difference between, you know, is an advertiser paying to put this in front of me after I do a search, or is this like something vaguely organic? I don't even know if there's a difference. I was just going to say, I don't think there is. Yeah, there isn't a difference. Yeah. Exactly. I, I don't think there is a difference because especially given that like everything that comes up top is going to be an Amazon prime customer, which is in, in a weird way, you know, on the back end, that's how Amazon prime makes its money, right? Is by forcing the marketplace sellers to pay a lot of money for Amazon fulfillment um, so that they then get shown at the top of the screen to um, prime customers. Yeah, they do have, uh, at least for the real estate above the fold at the very top of the screen, they do have sponsored labels on the products. Yeah, yeah, but I'm but talking I think about, about the search results. Yeah, well, I'm also thinking about, you know, uh, book publishers have to pay in both bricks and mortar bookstores and in uh, Amazon's listing for prime placement, and it's not labeled. You know, that's called, it's called buying co-op, and uh, they do it with Barnes & Noble and also... With Amazon, so one of the most powerful people in book publishing is the woman who runs co-op for Amazon, uh, and that's not clear to you know customers at all. Okay, like, I don't think uh, so. It may just be certain types of products get labeled and others don't. Yeah, no, it's it's incredibly opaque, and yeah. So, but Elizabeth, I come back. I'm going to ask you the same question again. What what would your preferred remedy be here? Well, I think it, if, if there's a way to force Amazon to allow retailers to actually set their own prices without punishing them. I, I think that alone would help because then at least customers have alternatives. So according to this complaint, uh, Amazon used to make sellers sign contracts saying like, we will offer our lowest price on Amazon. Otherwise, like we'll forfeit whatever 
stuff Amazon's giving them, you know, display rights or whatever. And a European court ruled that this was anti-competitive and they were like, okay, we'll stop doing it. But then they just started using their algorithm to do it. So it's not in the contract language, but their algorithm kind of like scrapes everything to figure out. They'll flag you if if there's something um, that's, you know, if, if one of your items is selling for less somewhere else, the agri- algo- algorithm flags it and your um, product on Amazon gets penalized. They take away what's called the buy box or they bury it, whatever. Um, oh, and I should add that Amazon denies everything and will fight the complaint. The one thing I will say is like, what can we do as consumers is if you are buying something that is made by a small company, I I bought like a pair of concrete bananas not long ago. Do not ask me why I bought bought a pair of concrete bananas, but I bought a pair of concrete (laughs) bananas and, and they were like available on Etsy, but it was obvious like who made them. And so I just bought them directly from the concrete banana store and I got a lovely note um, <laughs> with my concrete bananas saying like, you know, hey, like, thanks for buying the bananas. And also, thank you for buying them directly from our store rather than by a, some third party seller. Because, you know, when you do that, we don't need to pay all of these enormous fees to the third party seller. Um, and, you know, I'm going to do a little free plug here for the combustion meat thermometer, which I love, which is great, which you can just buy straight from combustionmeatthermometer.com or whatever it is, right? If you find... Wait, what's that? Uh, my meat thermometer always Oh, my breaks. God. The combustion meat thermometer, it is literally <laughs> magic. It is the most amazing. If you guys are looking for, like, a holiday present, um, it is the most magical thing in the world. You you put it in the oven, and it's, like, heat proof, and it has eight different um, temperature sensors on it. So it knows exactly what the internal temperature is wherever it's coolest. You don't need to, like, carefully put it in, carefully just shove it in any old how. And it will tell you what the internal temperature is. But even better than that, it will tell you what, like exactly how many minutes until it reaches the temperature you want it to be. And it'll give you a little alarm. It's 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 the most amazing thing. Anyway, you can buy like anything like that, which is just like a small company trying to make it in the you know in the tough world of big business or whatever. Just never buy their stuff from Etsy or Amazon or any of these like marketplace platformy type things. Just always try and go directly to the manufacturer. And it might not be cheaper because of all of these rules that you were talking about, but it will always make the company much happier. And you then wind up having the relationship with the company rather than with some horrible faceless mega tech corp. In the plus we'll find out why Felix <laughs> is buying concrete bananas. <laughs> <laughs> But we haven't reached the plus yet. We are we are going to talk about uh, LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Oh my god! All right, uh, <laughs> Elizabeth, what the hell is going on on LinkedIn? Please explain. Well, there's a theory that I don't quite buy that LinkedIn is cool now, partly because some of these other social platforms like Twitter are just uh, you know combusting into some crappy you know, experience for users. Uh, there was a Business Insider article about the weirdness of LinkedIn and how people are doing much more uh, oversharey kind of personal posts on it. But also there's an entire genre of shit posters on LinkedIn, which is incredible to me. Yeah, LinkedIn shit posting, which is amazing. Just LinkedIn posters. And you're like, like there is this extremely online term called poster, which is like, it's it includes shit posters, but it also just includes 
anyone who for like fun or cynicism or whatever is just trying to like game the algorithm without necessarily doing it for personal career advancement or something like that. And, and LinkedIn seems to be getting a whole bunch of people who are oversharing their personal lives, who are shit posting, who are doing like all of the random bullshit that we used to laugh at on Facebook in 2004 or whatever, you know, and how, why, like, no, <laughs> I mean, the shit posting is generally funny because it, the, the, the best of it skewers the sort of platonic ideals of a LinkedIn post. So what one guy did a post where he said something like, I, I made a hundred thousand dollars by getting the vaccine, you know, a thousand times. And, and it's, it sounded so much like the cadence of a real LinkedIn post that people believed it, you know, and it sort of went a little bit viral uh, because it felt plausible. Oh, or that guy who like, who claimed to have set up like 300 dates at Soho house and was like using it to insider trade Soho house stock because like all of, all of the people he set up dates with were going to buy Soho house memberships in order to like go on these dates. It was like, yeah, it's hilarious. I mean, here's my question for Emily, who's on LinkedIn a lot more than I am. Like, have you noticed any kind of degradation of the experience or improvement or has it changed in any way for you? Okay. First of all, LinkedIn is great, and I will defend it to the death. <laughs> <laughs> I really like LinkedIn, and I always have. And I know that makes me, uh, Felix, of when we were prepping, said, of course, you're a suburban mother, and of course you like LinkedIn or something, really. I did not say <laughs> and This is not true. I deny it. <laughs> um, but LinkedIn is great. I got a, I've gotten at least one or two job offers through LinkedIn, um, and I do like to visit it. And it has changed in the past couple of years. Just like these articles say, more people are posting like personal stuff to LinkedIn, which feels a little uncomfortable to me. Like the, the example in the Business Insider story was the guy who was getting a divorce and he went on LinkedIn and he was like, I'm getting divorced. This sucks or whatever. Um, and then people trolled him for that, which I don't really understand why that happened. But it does seem like if, if we're in this like professional-ish space. I, I don't know if you need to share so much about your personal life there, which is one of the things I like about LinkedIn, it's sort of like a more restrained social network where you can get jobs. So it makes more sense to me. But anyway, yes, people are sharing more personal anecdotes and there's more like, I'm an expert and I'm going to tell you my expert thoughts going on. There's more like news commentary. And we are work at Axios. And so sometimes the social folks at Axios will be like, can you post your story to LinkedIn? Make sure, you know, you write some stuff about it. And then there's a bunch of engagement on that, which strikes me as like, fine, like media outlets need a way to promote their stuff and get people to read their stories. And it's like relatively benign place to get your stories read, as opposed to having to post on, you know, FKA Twitter and get like, just torn apart by trolls and whoever else is over there now. You know what I mean? We should probably ask the Axios social folks this, but is LinkedIn actually a meaningful traffic driver? Are there sites that get a whole bunch of traffic from LinkedIn and get to monetize that by running ads against LinkedIn traffic? I mean, I would bet some of the business sites do. I think it's more of a clout driver, but I, I would ask them. Somehow I doubt it. It's good. It's good for the promotion of a story. I don't think it's like mass traffic. Like Facebook in the day was like, mass traffic but none of the social media networks are like that now do you think of it as 
newsy? Like when you go onto LinkedIn, would you say that most of what you read is related in some form or another to what's happening in the news? I'd say like maybe 50% is like um, other journalists being told to share their stories on LinkedIn. So you get to see some like good stuff. (laughs) I'll see like good stories that it may be missed. And then there's like, because I'm covering, you know, money stuff. So you sometimes see analysts posting interesting things that are off the news or off data that I would maybe miss if I wasn't looking over there. And then the other half is like a lot of people who've lost their jobs and are looking for jobs. Um, like, like it always was, you know, really need a job or this person is good for a job or whatever. So here's my question about, about like the posts. I always had this rule when I was on Twitter that especially in the early days, that if someone shared someone else's article and they said, this is a really good article, you should read this, then I would click on that and read it because that's like a third-party validation, right? Whereas if someone shared their own article and said, this is a really good article that I wrote, you should read it, I'm like, you're just self-promoting and that's a little bit, you know, déclassé. When you go on LinkedIn, I've always felt that like it has over it's been this sort of overwhelming stench of self-promotion to me like everyone is just talking in some way or another about like how great they are and how good their writing is and how smart they are and please can you hire me and give me a job and i just like maybe it's the englishman in me but i just find that incredibly off-putting well i think it's it's that now people think uh personal branding is a requirement for virtually any job position so linkedin is i I think the primary vehicle for a lot of people but but emily like apropos the the posts i want to ask you do you ever share an article on linkedin that is not written by you i'll answer your question felix but first i want to back up and say all social media is all about self-promotion all the time and even though you have your rule about not sharing sharing like that's a really old-fashioned rule, and I don't think anyone abides by it anymore. That said, I have shared other people's stories on LinkedIn. I feel certain that I have. Yes, I've done that. Mm-hmm. Or like reshared someone's story if I think it's good. Is that something that like do you at least agree with me in that if you see someone sharing someone else's story who isn't themselves, that's going to make you more likely to engage with it and to click on the link and that kind of thing? Yeah. Yes, that's true. But there are ways to share your own story that make it seem less self-promotional. Like if you if you share, if I see someone anywhere, any platform that shares all of their stories, I'm kind of like, all right, give it a rest. But if they selectively share them or they share some quote. We, we should talk to the Axios <laughs> like social teams and, and be like, you guys, stop telling us to share our own stories. You should always go to someone else at Axios and get them to share someone else's story. Because that's I disagree with both of you. But uh... <laughs> so when you write a story, I, I'm I'm going to share Emily's stories. Emily's going to share my stories, and we'll both get more engagement that way. Sure. So next time they ask me to share one of my stories, I'll be like, actually, could you ask Felix? Shit! Now I can't believe we've revealed our cunning plan on the internet on a podcast. <laughs> we should have kept this secret. I share my stuff on Twitter all the time. And I'll I'll reshare it too because I think uh, yeah she shares her stuff on Twitter and I like that she does because I I read all of Elizabeth's columns but I don't always see them and so when I see she shares one I'm like ooh and I read it right away like it's a service to me it's the Elizabeth Spires blog RSS feed there was an interview with Reed Hoffman a few years ago where he complained that everybody uses LinkedIn wrong and his big contention was that, like <laughs> you 
you're you're not supposed to uh, accept requests from people that you have not worked with or don't have a relationship with, which everyone has already violated a million oh, times. Oh, good, I'm but- doing it right then. <laughs> that, that's that's 100% me. I think you might be an exception. I guess I'm the only person doing LinkedIn right. <laughs> Email read. Be like, <laughs> that is a good rule of thumb. I'm your platonic user. Give Dan Roth a bunch of credit. This is my former colleague from... Portfolio magazine, who went on to become the editor in chief of LinkedIn a million years ago, he created just an absolute powerhouse in terms of the number of people reading, the number of stories, like a bunch of user generated content that is not completely shite, um, that people really like to read and that people like to share and that people spend a lot of time on. He's created an amazing site. And it might not be the kind of site that I like to read, but it's, you know, the revealed preference of millions and millions of people is they really like to read it a lot and spend a lot of time on it. And, you know, he's he's done something incredibly successful. So props to him. And if it's kind of evolving in ways that maybe he didn't anticipate, like, that's what happens. You know, that's that's life. And I think one last thing. Do we think you need to be on LinkedIn in 2023 like if you want to be a person who works i think i think you need to be on as in to just have a page with mm-hmm. like who you are and what your job is i don't think you need to be on in terms of like actively posting yeah i think that's right you need to have your na- your name there and it needs to be up to date with like your picture if you want to be in the job market right elizabeth yeah, I think that there are a lot of companies now that won't ask you for a resume. They'll just ask you to send your LinkedIn profile because they think it's essentially the same thing. We used to have a numbers round. I will start with 500, which is the number of dollars that it would cost you were you lucky enough to be able to buy a pair of the Adizero Adios Pro Evo 1 sneakers from adidas these are the sneakers that tigas de wore when she broke the world record by more than two minutes for the marathon in berlin this is she absolutely smashed the world record and she was wearing these um 500 sneakers from adidas but here's the thing they are optimized for speed and not for durability and they are literally designed to last exactly one marathon. Whoa. Once you've run 42 kilometers in these, they're basically toast and you have to throw them away. Seems worth it if you can win a marathon wearing them. Is this like those Nike sneakers that everyone was talking about a few years ago that make you faster? Yeah. So like for a while, yeah, for a while, everyone was like wearing those hot pink Nike sneakers because they made you faster. And now Adidas has like, what they cost twice, these ones cost twice as much as the Nikes and only last for one race. So for the Nike ones, they were like normal shoes, which you couldn't wear for multiple races before they wear out. That's wild. And you, and if you're a professional racer, you probably want to know what it, what it feels like to run in them. So you want like a practice pair maybe before you even wore them for the, for the marathon. I'm sure Adidas gave, gave her like a few dozen pairs to like yeah, train exactly. in before she ran the marathon. Wow. Yeah. So you're going you're gonna to shell out 500 bucks for a, pair of, well, a single-use <laughs> pair of sneakers when you run the marathon, Emily? No. Felix has now revealed that I am scheduled to run the New York City Marathon. But I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm not worried about my speed it's enough to buy the $500 sneakers. So, But I'm going to go check them out. I, was, I do want to buy new sneakers for the marathon. Elizabeth, what's your number? 
If I was being lazy, I would say it was three because that's the number of inches of water in my basement right now. <gasps> We're all taping remotely because it's apocalyptic in New York at the moment. But my real number is uh, 45000 and that's the uh, what you would pay in dollars for a Christian Dior jacket that's knee-length, and it's embroidered and embellished with mirrors. And it took around 2,000 hours to embroider in India. And But it was finished in France for less than 100 hours. But if you look at the label on the jacket, it says made in France because uh, luxury fashion brands want the imprimatur of European um, construction. But most of these goods are increasingly being made in India and China. I, I don't know if it's increasing. I think it's been that way for a long time. And country of origin rules, I, I've, I've said this on the um, – show many times in the past at some point when we get really desperate we're going to have an entire episode devoted to country of origin rules which are the most amazing mind-blowing weird corner of global economics that like if you get into them it's a rabbit hole that you never crawl out of um and they can be amazing but like it's we we're gonna need to find exactly the right person to talk about them because it's um it's just nerdy as all hell. So, yeah, Slate Money listeners, let us know, slatemoney at slate.com, if you have an expert on on um, country of origin rules who I can interview for this here show. But, Emily, what's your number? My number is $20. This week, the governor of California signed a new minimum wage law for fast food workers, and in April they were they will earn twenty dollars an hour. Um, and I think we talked about some this on the show maybe last year because it was supposed to be twenty two dollars an hour, and it was supposed to take a while to get there. Um, but then the fast food industry freaked out when California passed sort of a different law a year ago, and something amazing happened, which was fast food industry pushed back on the, on the law and. I, as an observer, was like, Ugh, this law is doomed because we all know what happens. You know, they were planning a referendum in the state and the referendum was going to be confusing. Um, but what happened was the the union basically figured out a way to get the fast food industry like to a negotiation. And they figured out sort of a few tweaks to the old law and they managed to get this new law passed. And the upshot is about a half a million, well, the upshot is a lot of fast food workers are going to get a big raise in April. So it's pretty cool. So which union was this? And did they have a formal role in the negotiations somehow? So it was SEIU, Service Employees International Union. Um, and yeah, they did play a role. And they had this great strategy where basically they were like, oh, okay, you're going to fight us with this referendum. Well, we're going to bring back this idea of um, like this regulation where franchises are not considered real franchises anymore and need to be regulated like as part of the big corporation. So they kind of like, we're going to do this. And then they, they said, we're going to do this other thing too, like which would have been even worse for fast food restaurants. Um, and basically the fast, the restaurant industry was like, we'll talk to you. <laughs> At least that's the way the union tells the story anyway. And it does seem like they somehow made it all work out to the benefit of workers in the state. So everyone's pretty excited, all the working people. Uh, 
Okay, so I think that's it for us this week. Thanks so much for listening to Slate Money and sending us your emails, slatemoney at slate.com. Thanks so much to Shane and Roth for producing. And stay tuned for the Slate Plus, I hope you're a Slate Plus member, where we are going to talk about more consumer purchases, not just concrete bananas, but even gold bars, which are for sale in Costco now. We'll find out how many gold bars Felix paid for concrete bananas. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah, we'll work out the price of concrete bananas in ounces of gold. It's all coming up on Sleep Plus.